The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. Terminate the Constitution. A man whose words have previously deliberately unleashed an attempted coup against the democratically elected government of the United States now calls for the termination of the Constitution of the United States. And 48 hours later, he has not been arrested by the FBI, nor apprehended by the Secret Service, nor detained by the military in a brig or stockade. The way this country throughout its history has responded to those who have begun a seditious conspiracy to overthrow the government twice. This is madness. If you or I simply had for the second time threatened the life of a president or of almost any elected official or indeed of almost anybody in this country, When the first time you or I did that, a mob showed up and tried to kill that president or officer or citizen, by now we would have been in custody. And neither of us would have had the added history of loudly and defiantly demanding the right to yell fire in every crowded theater we have ever passed. Well... Answers Ohio Congressman Dave Joyce, chairman of a group of supposed moderates within the GOP, whose campaign website is nonetheless dominated by an upshot of Trump's comb over. Well, he says a lot of things, but that doesn't mean it's ever going to happen. As ludicrous and stupid as that sounds, I would argue that David Joyce is closer to expressing the preferred response in almost every quarter of this government and seven-eighths of the media supposedly there to watchdog government when it gets this amazingly stupid. It's not like it's going to happen. I mean, how is that guy actually going to kill anybody with that gun? He's a terrible shot. How is that terrorist really going to destroy Dave Joyce's home of Ashtabula County, Ohio? We don't even know if he knows how to detonate it. 
Why should we, the New York Times, even cover this? He says crap like this all the time. We don't want this story obscuring our big feature on Anderson Cooper's pain. He says a lot of things. That doesn't mean it's ever going to happen. The way January 6th never happened. Oh, sorry, bad example. I know, as you know, that none of Trump's latest new high and low holds together logically. We all know that. He calls to terminate the rules of the Constitution, literally hours after putting out a video claiming his January 6th stochastic terrorist mob is being treated unconstitutionally, while he himself is again seeking an office where the first thing you do upon assuming it is to swear to uphold the Constitution, while the leader of his party in Congress scornfully announces that the first thing he will do in the new Congress is to have Republicans stand up and proudly read aloud word for word on the record for the first time in years the entirety of the Constitution, which Trump wants terminated. But if we have learned one thing in the last seven years of hell, it is that logic has nothing to do with it. Certainly not for the idiots who constitute Trump's base and his set of potential terrorists as well. Their word is angertainment. For some, the umbrage itself suffices. For others, like Trump himself, it must always escalate from there. Trump himself was responding to the Elon Musk, Matt Taibbi, quote, revelations about Hunter Biden's laptop, which turned out to prove a... Taibbi found no evidence of government involvement in Twitter's decisions. B, as a New York Post reporter said, uh, this was not the smoking gun we were hoping for. C, Musk has no idea of time, specifically what the word tomorrow means. D, the entire takeaway is that Musk and other fascists are trying to make the world safe for dick pics. And E, I owe you an apology for having put Matt Taibbi on MSNBC all those years ago. But the Biden laptop festival of meh, when escalated by Trump's call to overthrow the Constitution, has been enough to then unleash a profound threat of political violence and maybe at least two attempted domestic terror attacks, one of which may have succeeded Hours after Trump did what he did, a Minnesota Republican named Shukri Abdirahman, who once tried to get the nomination to run against Congresswoman Ilhan Omar in the 5th District in Minnesota, posted, quote, We can no longer get rid of tyranny by the ballots. It's only by the bullets now. When Twitter, 24 hours later, removed that, this Abdirahman responded, quote, It's no secret that our founders would have taken up arms and put to use the real purpose of the Second Amendment to take out this tyrannical government, unquote. As of this recording, Shukri Abdirahman has not yet been arrested. Again, why not? Here in New York Saturday morning, there was an attempt to break up a drag story hour event in or near Lincoln Center in what might be a lesson for all the homophobes, or is at minimum simply hilarious, three of the, quote, protesters, including a woman, were attacked, supposedly by six people, who threw eggs at them, and then stole the woman's purse. And then as the, quote, protesters ran away, somebody threw a brick in their direction. 
But it wasn't so funny in Moore County, North Carolina, which remained under a curfew last night because two power substations were shot up on Saturday and nearly 40,000 residents remain without electricity. And it could remain that way until Thursday. A woman named Emily Rainey posted on social media, quote, the power is out in Moore County and I know why. And she showed a picture of the Sunrise Theater in Southern Pines, North Carolina, where an 18 and older drag event was scheduled and went on anyway by flashlight. Quote, God will not be mocked, she added. North Carolina police last night seemed to indicate they had interviewed her and she was lying or delusional or both. But the through line here is this Emily Rainey is an ex-Army PSYOPs officer who in 2020 tried to circumvent COVID restrictions in Southern Pines and who then led a group of people to hear Trump speak on January 6, 2021. Can you draw a truly straight line, specific cause and effect between Trump's madness about the Constitution and the call for political assassination in Minnesota or the attack that went so hilariously wrong in New York or whatever has happened in North Carolina? The answer is, at this point, I no longer care. I am satisfied that the guilt has been painted in broad strokes only because the day before that Trump was anti-Constitution, Trump positioned himself as pro-Constitution and in doing so once again publicly and loudly hinted that he will pardon people who commit crimes on his behalf. People have been treated unconstitutionally, in my opinion, and very, very unfairly. And we're going to get to the bottom of it. Our country is going communist. This is what happens. And we can't let it happen. We have to stop it. So I want to thank everybody for working so hard. I know how hard you're working to get justice for people that are imprisoned right now and people that are being tormented. We can't let it happen. We're going to stop it. We're going to win. Between that and the post, this is seditious conspiracy. Encourage terrorism, specify a target or an aim, promise pardons. And each day we do not act against Trump, we increase the chances that he will regain power. And as insane and as impossible as this sounds, he will destroy whatever he can. And as of now, this includes the Constitution of the United States of America. He will destroy whatever he can because simply we have let him get away with it so far. This must stop. And the final component here, the final metric of just how bad this is and just how urgently it must be responded to and how he must be thwarted is simple. It is a thought experiment. Some of us might be the New York Times waiting 24 hours to write anything about Trump and his desire to eliminate the Constitution. Some of us might be this idiot from Ohio, Congressman Joyce, with the rationalization, says a lot of things, that doesn't mean they're ever going to happen. But what if these precise Trumpian comments had been made by somebody else? Where would we be right now in this country, as this country, if the story was, quote, A massive fraud of this type and magnitude allows for the termination of all rules, regulations, and articles, even those found in the Constitution, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis said today. Or where would we be right now if the story was, quote, Elon Musk posted a Twitter poll asking if the U.S. should declare the rightful winner or do you have a new election? Or... 
where would we be right now if the story was, quote, unprecedented fraud requires unprecedented cure, wrote President Joe Biden. Still ahead, you knew it had to happen. Fascists defending Kanye West's anti-Semitism and pro-Hitler stance. After 9-11, we all knew Rudy Giuliani tried to stay on as co-mayor of New York, but now the former governor of the state claims it was way worse than that. Rudy wanted to postpone the election. Baseball's dumbest free agent signing, the Texas Rangers just spent $185 million for the sixth best pitcher on the New York Mets. And the day my boss, Ted Turner, humiliated me in public, so I was going to run up behind him and horse collar him and then go back into radio until I remembered about that pesky rent. That's next. This is Countdown. This is Countdown with Keith Olbermann. Still ahead on Countdown, what was the first thing Rudy Giuliani thought of after the 9-11 attacks on democracy? Cancel the election so he could stay in office. And the day a New York Yankees outfielder convinced the team owner, George Steinbrenner, to trade away the man who was just elected last night as baseball's newest Hall of Famer. Coming up. First, in each edition of Countdown, we feature a dog in need you can help. Every dog has its day. This time, it's not a dog. It is an entire rescue. Our friends at AMA Animal Rescue in Brooklyn, New York, need your help if you are in the area. They are remodeling their facility, and they have to close it entirely for two weeks. Everybody out. All the animals at the rescue have been fostered out for those two weeks, except for three small dogs, including a very soulful gal named Angela plus two kittens. They still need temporary homes or permanent homes if you are so inclined. If you're in the New York metropolitan area and you can help out, email foster at amaanimalrescue.org or just refer to my tweets, foster at amaanimalrescue.org or check my tweets. I thank you and AMA Animal Rescue and Angela, thank you. Postscripts to the news, some headlines, some updates, some snarks, some predictions. Dateline Tehran, the Iranian morality police whose murder of a woman not wearing her head covering to their liking set off protests that have threatened to topple the theocracy there have been abolished by the government or they have not been abolished by the government. Iran's attorney general, Javad Montazeri, is reported to have said the police, quote, was abolished by the same authorities who installed it while other officials insist no such decision has been made. Dateline Sesame Street, the original is gone. Bob McGrath, who played the neighbor on the landmark PBS Kids show from its pilot in 1969 through the year 2017, has died at the age of 90, according to his family. Before his remarkable tenure on the program, Bob McGrath was one of the singers on the 60s TV staple, Sing Along with Mitch Miller. And Dateline Fascistville, it had to happen morons defending Kanye West. Defending him from what? Oh, you remember. I got to watch my accounts because they've been frozen by the Jewish uh, banks. So I I need to watch my mills. Well, CNN says why people are evil Nazis, so 
I mean, I, I, I disagree with both statements, but I get the yeah, Trojan. I don't, I don't like the word evil next to Nazis. I think we need to look <laughs> at. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Just because you don't like one group doesn't mean the other. But look, look, I fine. love Jewish people, but I also love Nazis. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Well, I have to disagree with that. Right, but listen, we're going to go to break. We'll be right back. Kevin Sorbo who may or may not have retired as an actor, it's hard to tell, writing, I may not agree with what Ye said, but he has the right to say it. That's how free speech works. Yeah, and the society then also has the right to bury him for saying it, because that's also how free speech works. Going a little further, fascist podcast host Stephen Crowder, please enjoy Mr. Crowder's attempts to twist himself into a pretzel in a failed effort to not repeat the oldest, dumbest trope fallen back on by every entertainment failure, such as Steven Crowder, that it's not a lack of talent on the part of, you know, Steven Crowder. It is the fault of the you-know-whos who run Hollywood. He's not wrong about everything. Look, is there a conversation to be had about secular hum humanists with Jewish last names in Hollywood exploiting people uh, in positions of, uh, you know, the performance arts talent. Yeah, yeah. And by the way, that happens in the conservative movement too, behind the scenes. Yeah. People sign contracts where they don't know what they're signing. Yeah, it's true. Is there a disproportional, uh, disproportionate number of people with Jewish last names in higher banking? That's, that's an argument that can be made. Is there a conversation to be had about that? You sure it's not your deviated septum? Is there a conversation to be had about that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there is. Here's the conversation. Hey, Crowder, you're an anti-Semite bastard. Here endeth the conversation. This is Sports Center. Wait, check that. Not anymore. This is Countdown with Keith Olbermann. In sports, there have been so many different committees responsible for electing people to baseball's Hall of Fame that there is not even unanimous agreement as to exactly how many there have been. But one of them at least got it partially right yesterday. The 16-member Contemporary Era Committee yesterday voted unanimously to elect longtime slugger Fred McGriff to the Hall of Fame. Twelve votes were required for election, and each committee member could vote for only four of the eight nominees. The next closest was Don Mattingly with eight votes. Kurt Schilling had seven. Dale Murphy had six. The other four nominees, including Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens, and Rafael Palmero along with Albert Bell, were dismissed with this announcement. Fewer than four votes. <laughs> Lol. The man nicknamed the crime dog, Fred McGriff, slugged 493 career homers and never had one whiff of steroids about him. He played for six teams. He had at least 99 homers for three of them, playing mostly for the Blue Jays, Braves, and Rays. All of which serves to remind some of us that Friday is the 40th anniversary of one of the worst trades in baseball history, and that that trade just got worse. On December 9th, 1982, the Toronto Blue Jays traded minor leaguer Tom Dodd and relief pitcher Dale Murray to the Yankees for outfielder Dave Collins, pitcher Mike Morgan, and a minor leaguer who had, to that point, played exactly 91 professional games, the new Hall of Famer Fred McGriff. Years ago, I was having dinner with my friend, the late Yankee shortstop and then architect of their late 90s dynasty, Gene Stick Michael. Stick mentioned that trade. 
he laughed and said, Lou Pinella made that deal. And I said, no, that's impossible. Lou Pinella was still an active player when, when they traded McGriff. And Stick laughed again. He said, yep. And the Blue Jays were willing to give us Dale Murray and take Dave Collins' big contract off our hands. And somebody called George Steinbrenner directly. And instead of calling me or anybody else who knew, George called his buddy Lou Pinella. And Lou said, George, Dale Murray. Dale Murray is one of the greatest relievers in baseball. Stick laughed again. What Lou meant, of course, was that Dale Murray always got Lou out. Almost nobody else, just Lou. So Lou told George, do whatever you have to do to get Dale Murray. Do it. So George did it. And at the last moment, the Jays said, we really like this other kid you have, uh, McGriff, down in A-ball. Can you throw him in? And George said, sure. And that, Stick Michael told me, is how we lost Fred McGriff for absolutely nothing. You want to pass the rolls? Thank you, Nancy Faust. Speaking of which... In today's game, one of the best pitchers of the last decade, Jacob deGrom, left the New York Mets for a five-year, $185 million contract with the Texas Rangers. I think they overpaid by $185 million. The problem is deGrom won back-to-back Cy Young Awards in 2018 and 2019 and since has pitched barely half the time. By modern metrics, he was only the sixth best pitcher on the Mets last season. In fact, he was only tied for sixth on the Mets last season. But the decision to invest that much money in DeGrom is actually a little worse than it sounds or may have occurred to you. Lots of pitchers get hurt. Lots of pitchers come back. Lots of pitchers get better, even at the age of 35. The age DeGrom will reach in June. But almost all of them who do that do it after they have had whatever was wrong with them corrected surgically. Each time DeGrom couldn't pitch, the treatment was rest. This may not be a question of how much DeGrom is a health risk in 2023 and beyond. Maybe a question of how much DeGrom is a surgery risk. Texas Rangers go to New York next August 30th to play the Mets. As a friend of the podcast joked, wow, just in time for DeGrom's first start of the season. And a soccer note, the U.S. was knocked out of the World Cup in Qatar by the Dutch Saturday 3-1. As one Carl Sharrow wrote... This is the first time in history the U.S. has left a Middle Eastern country so quickly. Ahead, not only did I work for Ted Turner, but I covered Ted Turner. And at the 1982 football strike, while covering Ted Turner and working for Ted Turner, I nearly decked Ted Turner. Things I promised not to tell coming up. First, the daily roundup of the miscreants, morons, and Dunning-Kruger effect specimens who constitute today's worst persons in the world. The bronze, points bet, one of the sports wagering firms. It started a new thing called lightning bets, so it put out a story that went viral that its spokesman, former NFL quarterback Drew Brees, had had been hit by lightning in Venezuela. Then it released a commercial in which Breeze is seen getting hit by lightning. A group called Lightning Strike and Electric Shock Survivors International. 
has responded with justifiable anger. A spokesman said this is a deadly injury and it is disappointing to see the continual ridicule of lightning and electrical injury survivors in comical lights in which it is presented for commercial gain and profit. About 28 Americans a year die from lightning strikes. Way more than, say, die from terrorism. Imagine a commercial on TV in which they make a joke about somebody dying in a terrorist attack while gambling. Runner-up Sharon uh, Shannon Epstein, a passenger on a Spirit Airlines flight from New Orleans to New Jersey last month. It has now been revealed that seeing a couple of passengers she perceived to be Latino, Ms. Epstein asked them if they were, quote, smuggling cocaine. When the flight crew decided she should not be on board, she had to be removed, and she was, shall we say, reluctant. Quoting the website NOLA.com, in the scuffle, she injured six deputies, biting one on the arm and breaking the skin and kicking another in the groin, all the while telling everybody involved that they would lose their jobs because her uncle was friends with Trump. Who's her uncle? Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie. And you'd think if you were going to throw his name around like that, niece Karen, you'd be up to date enough to know that Trump is no friend of Chris Christie's. But our winner... Speaking of, Rudy Giuliani. You may recall that after the 9-11 attacks, the arrogant Giuliani we knew before then disappeared briefly, and the hair-painting, sputtering conspiracy nut had yet to appear. But by September 24th or 25th of 2001, Giuliani was hinting that it would be dangerous for New York City if he left office as scheduled on December 31st. And so he proposed to the governor of New York State that he should stay on for a year as co-mayor with his successor. Turns out it was way worse than that. Governor George Pataki has a new book coming out, and he says Giuliani first asked Pataki to overrule the city's legal term limits so Giuliani could run again for mayor for a third term six weeks later. And when he would not do that, Giuliani simply said that Pataki should just cancel the election. Better than all this, Giuliani does not deny he wanted one of those outcomes because, of course, the first thing you want to do after the worst terrorist attack in America's history, which your own political party has already billed as the attack on democracy, is to, you know, cancel an election. Rudy, eh, I had two good weeks. Giuliani, today's worst person in the world! the number one story on the countdown and my favorite topic, me and things I promised not to tell. And before the 40th anniversary of this event recedes into the forgotten past, I have one more story to tell you about covering the 1982 National Football League players strike. And this is less about the strike itself and more about the man for whom I covered it, Ted Turner. Ted Turner had put CNN on the air just two years earlier, and his sports guy, Bill McPhail, had interviewed me for a job as their New York sports reporter even earlier than that, May of 1980. And when I did not get it, I was genuinely relieved because I was convinced there was no way they would ever get CNN on the air. No chance. Ever. Obviously, I did not account for Ted Turner's stubbornness. Anyway, I wound up going there freelance in 1981, as I have related in some detail here when Lou Dobbs and his girlfriend, the New York sports reporter, had to get out of town fast at the insistence of Mrs. Lou Dobbs. 
Eight months later, as the 1982 NFL strike loomed, they had made me staff and given me a contract, first offering me $1,000 less a year than they were paying me freelance. Even CNN of 1982 acknowledged the absurdity of that mathematical proposition. So I was vested, already whining about Ted Turner, employee of CNN, when the football players walked out on strike in September 1982. And that strike was my beat every day from March to November. A day or so after the strike began, we set up an interview with the president of CBS Sports, Neil Pilsen, about the effect that the strike would have on TV sports in general and CBS Sports in particular. And as the camera crew and I filed into his office, Pilsen wearily said... Nothing against you guys, but I've done so many interviews already about this strike that if you actually come up with a question I haven't been asked already, I'll give you... Well, we all leaned in towards him. Give us what? A job? A job interview at least? $50? I'll give you CBS sports caps. Nah, not exactly a job, but better than nothing. So we rolled tape and I said, so Mr. Pilsen, in light of the strike, do you wish CBS Sports did not have the Super Bowl this year as it does? And he laughed and he took off his mic and he went over to his office phone and he buzzed his assistant. Bring in three caps, will you? And he sat back down. He said, you guys did it. Nobody asked me that yet. And it's like the only question that really interests me. You still rolling? Neil Pilsen then proceeded to give a lengthy and thoughtful answer about how, as long as the season was not canceled, it was probably better to have the next Super Bowl because people would be so grateful that after the strike, they wound up playing it anyway. So now a week goes by after that interview and the bargaining sessions between the players and the owners are taking place in a Manhattan hotel, the Lowe's on Lexington Avenue, a dump with a nice lobby. All that matters to me is the Lowe's with the dump and the nice lobby is literally three blocks from my apartment. The players and the owners just march through a long hallway into private rooms. That's all we see of them. It is not heavy lifting. There are nice seats, at least in that lobby. But it is enlivened one day by news that our boss, Ted Turner, has asked the union if he can come in and meet with their 20-odd player negotiating team because he wants to pitch them on something. He was, in fact, due there yesterday, but was unavoidably detained. The rumor the players told me, never confirmed, was that while changing planes in Chicago, Turner and an air hostess had ensconced themselves in a dumpster, or the other version was in a janitor's closet, for 12 hours of whoopee. And that's why he was a day late. Anyway, I walk into the Lowe's that morning, and if somehow I had not been able to recognize my camera crew, sure enough, it is the same two guys who had been with me at Neil Pilsen's office at CBS when I asked him the question he had not been asked before, earning us free CBS sports caps. And the cameraman and the deck operator are, of course, wearing their CBS sports caps. And understand, in 1982, CNN was not an upstart. It was not the feisty outsider. It was not the future of news. We were called Pretend TV. It was said that CNN stood for Chicken Noodle News. One day, I called somebody up and asked for press credentials for Cable News Network, and the guy said, Cable News Network? Are you the people who own the newsstands downtown? I had no idea what he was talking about, so I went to one of the newsstands, and I asked the guy, who owns this place? And he pointed to a plaque, and it said, owned by Cabell News Company. The Cabell News Company, owner of downtown newsstands, was better known than Cable News Network. We got scoffed at. 
In some arenas and venues like Madison Square Garden in New York, our crews were not admitted because they were not in the union. So the CBS sports camps were an important, albeit borrowed, touch of legitimacy and dignity, especially for my cameraman and my deck guy. So the three of us position ourselves in that long hall in the lobby waiting for my boss, Ted Turner, me holding the mic with the big red CNN logo on the mic flag and the crew wearing their gaudy CBS sports caps. And in Ted walks, emerging from the brilliant early autumn sunshine, filtering in from behind him from the street like this was a perfectly lit movie scene. And he sees me and recognizes me and smiles and comes over and beams, hot damn, it's my CNN crew. And he shakes my hand, and we roll tape, and I start to ask him my first question, and suddenly the joy drains from his face, and he stops me. Hold it. What they wearing on their heads? He gestures at the cameraman and the deck guy, and I explain the backstory. I don't give a damn who gave them them. This is CNN crew. They wearing CBS sports caps. Get them off their damn heads. And he pushes me. I mean, really shoves me and strides past us. Now, even then... I'm five, six inches taller than Ted Turner and 25 pounds heavier at least. And maybe I can live with my employer embarrassing me in public, but I do not have to let him shove me in front of all the other reporters. So for a second, I think I'm just going to run down the hall and catch him and horse collar the bastard from behind. About a year into my TV career, I have already accepted that there are positives to television, but I've also already learned nearly all the negatives and not three months earlier... I had gone over to ABC to interview with them about going back to do radio sports. Seems to me, given what I know about Ted Turner, dragging him to the ground and then quitting TV forever would be a pretty appropriate farewell. And then one word popped into my head. Rent. Oh, right, 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 rent. So quickly I go to plan B. To be fair... In thought, if not in action, Ted Turner was right. Looked pretty silly to have the CNN camera crew wearing CBS sports caps while interviewing the founder and owner of CNN, who, by the way, was in the newspaper constantly because he kept saying he was going to buy CBS. Plus, I still had a story to do that day, and that crew was going to have to go back into the room where Turner would be meeting with the players about an hour later for the proverbial spray shot that would give us some video to use of their meeting. And simply having my guys take their caps off was not going to suffice. So I ran the three blocks back to my apartment to grab the only bit of merch or swag produced in the first two years of CNN, something they had an apparently inexhaustible supply of. CNN bumper stickers. I must have had a hundred of them in my place alone, and there were boxes and cartons and boxes and cartons of them in the New York Bureau, which was funny enough as it was, since I don't think all the people who worked at CNN in New York in 1982 owned six cars among them. Anyway, I trimmed a couple of the stickers down to just the CNN logos and raced back to the crappy Lowe's Hotel, and just as they were calling for the crews to come in to get the spray shots of Ted meeting with the players, I put those CNN logo stickers over the CBS logos on my guys' caps, and to my delight, they stuck in place. A little large, but it worked. Minutes later, the boys came out of the meeting room, and the cameraman was in hysterics. He wound the video back and had me watch it through the viewfinder of the camera. 
as soon as they had walked in, Turner started to give them dirty looks, and then suddenly one of the NFL players said, hey, Ted, there's your crew. There's your CNN crew. Hey, CNN, over here. Everybody was laughing, and now Ted was beaming. That them. That's my CNN crew, all right. Good work, boys. When his meeting with the players broke up an hour later, I got a message from Ted's assistant to wait for him around a corner from the main lobby so he could give me, give CNN, exclusive details about what he was trying to sell the players on. It was a series of exhibition games, so the striking players could make a little money on the side that he could televise, and there would be a pitch to the National Labor Relations Board that the strike had been forced on the players by the owners, which would have meant the players would have all become free agents. Ted wanted them. All of them, every player in the National Football League, to sign instead with him. He would create a 24-team league. He would give the union half ownership of every team. He would find backers for the other half. And all he wanted was the TV rights. It didn't happen, obviously, but what a breathtaking scheme. Anyway, Turner was all smiles when he came out of the meeting to tell me before he met with the rest of the press. And he said, great with the hat. Good work. Gonna have to get you guys some real CNN sports hats for Christmas. Ted stayed another 15 or 20 minutes doing God knows what with God knows whom. I didn't see any dumpsters in the hotel. And then he left by the main exit as the rest of the camera crews and reporters trailed him. I went along just to see if there was anything he hadn't told me. And as he went out the doors to his car, he said, see you, Elberman. And I said, don't forget the hats. And Ted Turner gave me one of the dirtiest looks I have ever gotten in my life. Sure enough, a couple days before Christmas, I get a call from my boss in Atlanta. We just got a box of 100 CNN sports truckers caps from Ted Turner's office. I don't know what the hell this is all about, but his assistant says if we wanted to know, we should call you. I was very proud of making the correct choice between correcting a mistake and getting us all hats and assaulting him. There is one postscript. Ted talked the players into the exhibition games I mentioned, only two of them, one at RFK Stadium in Washington, which I went to on assignment, seated next to Ted Turner. He had two flasks with him. Anyway, the crowd was so small at RFK Stadium in Washington that at one point they got on the PA system and asked all the fans to go sit down behind the player benches so the TV shots of the game wouldn't show all those empty seats. The other game was in the Los Angeles Coliseum. They drew even less. Maybe 1,000 fans, probably more like 500. 500 fans in the L.A. Coliseum. 500 fans looks like the raisins and rice pudding. But it was the name of his ad hoc league with these games in Washington and L.A. that still sticks with me 40 years later. Ted named it himself. I'm pretty sure he did this deliberately. I know nobody else noticed it until I made a big deal about it. Ted Turner called his ill-fated venture, his ersatz National Football League, the, quote, all-star season. And I said, perfect. The acronym you have built for it is... A-S-S. I've done all the damage I can do here. Thank you for listening. If you're not following or subscribed to the podcast, please do so. If you can stop somebody on the street, get them to subscribe too. I'd appreciate it. 
Here are the credits. Most of the music, including our theme from Beethoven's Ninth, was arranged, produced, and performed by Brian Ray and John Philip Chanel. They are the Countdown musical directors. All orchestration and keyboards by John Philip Chanel. Guitars, bass, and drums by Brian Ray. Produced by TKO Brothers. Other Beethoven selections have been arranged and performed by No Horns Allowed. The sports music is the Olbermann theme from ESPN2, and it was written by Mitch Warren Davis, courtesy of ESPN Inc. Musical comments by Nancy Faust, the best baseball stadium organist ever. Our announcer today was Stevie Van Zant, and everything else is pretty much my fault. So that's Countdown for this, the 699th day since Donald Trump's first attempted coup against the democratically elected government of the United States. Arrest him now while we still can. A new edition tomorrow. Until then, I'm Keith Olbermann. Good morning, good afternoon, good night, and good luck. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.